Well, you haven't heard anything yet, so you may want to hold on to that for a little bit. <clears throat> so my name is Jason. Um, I'm so glad that you're here today. Uh, as Dan mentioned, I am one of the elders here. Um, I am a coffee-drinking, geeky nerd who loves God, math, and science fiction. Uh, and so when I say geeky nerd, what I'm talking about is a geek would say, may the force be with you. A nerd would say, may the force be equal to mass times acceleration. I would say both of those, geeky nerd. I've been married about 27 years to my purple-haired crazy cat lady wife. Um, we've been attending here for about 17 years. Uh, we have a son who just graduated with a degree in biology from Eastern. Uh, if you've known us since we've been attending here, since my son was this big, uh, yes, it's true, you're old. So... Really glad that you're here with us today. Uh, as mentioned, we're going to be doing a two-week sermon series um, on how we put, bring together faith and reason. You see, we live in an age of skepticism where everyone questions everything. And so Christianity is oftentimes accused of being little more than a feeling or perhaps a neurological disorder. So we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at the reason behind our faith. This week, we're going to be looking at how do I know the Bible is true Next week, we're going to be looking at how do I know that the resurrection is real. I hope you're excited about that. I know I'm excited about it, and you're stuck with me for two weeks regardless. So um, let's dive into it. A lot of this came from a bumper sticker that I saw that some of you may even have, which says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Okay, it's a great statement of faith, don't get me wrong, but how does an unbeliever read that? How does an unbeliever see that? Because they're not convinced that God said it. Therefore, they don't believe it, and if we leave it there, it won't settle anything, and we can't leave it there. In fact, the Bible actually tells us we need to be ready to explain our faith. The Apostle Peter tells us, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. So if you look at the original Greek, the word he uses there is apologia, which means to speak in defense of something. So in the classical Greek legal system, you had a prosecutor and a defender, and the prosecution delivered the categoria, which is basically the accusation, and the defense would respond with the apologia, or the defense, a rebuttal of any of the charges that were being filed. So Peter is telling us that when someone questions the validity of our faith, we need to be ready to provide a defense of our faith. So this type of theological study has a name. It's called apologetics. So that's from the Greek word apologia. We're not apologizing for our faith, but that is what it's called. It's called apologetics. And what it does is it goes beyond just how we feel about our relationship with God, but it actually gets into how we think about our relationship with God. And we should think about our faith. We should use logic and reason. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 27 and Luke 10 said that we should love the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So we are supposed to think our relationship with God isn't just about how we feel with him, although that is a critical, important part of it, but it's also how we think about our relationship with God. We're supposed to use our minds. We're supposed to use reason. That's why it's important that we cover a topic like this. Because even if we feel confident in our faith, it's important to be ready to provide a reason to somebody else about our faith, especially if they question it. And let's be real. Sometimes we don't always feel confident in our faith. Sometimes we have doubt. 
We see something bad happen, uh, or maybe life isn't going the way we think it should, or something hits our heart especially hard, and we're left wondering, is any of this still true? Is any of this actually real? What if I really am just a blink in the cosmic eye and evolutionary self-aware happenstance with no long-term point to this life? Sometimes we get these questions. We wonder, what if the skeptics are right? We all face doubt at some point in time or another, and it can feel like sin. It can feel like, wait a minute, I accepted Christ. I've got a little bit of doubt here. Therefore, it feels like sin, and I feel like I have to keep it secret. But the truth is, recognizing doubt and addressing it and dealing with it and thinking through it can actually be the starting point for a stronger walk with God. So this is why I love the story of the man who brings his son to Jesus for healing. And this is what he says to Jesus. He says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I love that this is recorded in the Bible because it is vivid and it gives us this this view into someone who is struggling with the fact that he believes, but he needs Christ's help removing that unbelief. And so it gives us a little bit of hope to know that we're not alone in sometimes this struggle that we have. Because sometimes doubt will creep into our minds and our thoughts because of what we hear in the world. We hear objections to the Bible from comedians or politicians or scientists or our neighbors. They complain about what they think the Bible says about women or war or history or science. And so I know many of you have heard those objections. Many of you have heard the different scientists or your neighbors or your family members or your friends object to something in the Bible. And in fact, what I want you to do is I want you to take a moment And I'm going to have you talk to the person sitting next to you and share with that person some of the common objections that you've heard about the Bible. And then I'll have you shout out a couple of those here after you've done that. So take a moment, talk to the person next to you. What are some of the common objections that you've heard about the Bible? Go ahead. All right, let's hear a few of these. Go ahead and shout out one or two. Creation, science. science. They object to science because they probably think there's an issue there, right? What else we got? It's just a book. It's just a book. Come on. All right, I like that. What else we got? Timeline translations. Written too many times. Yep, copied too many times. These are all... Really, really, really good. I like all of these. And in fact, we're going to tackle a few of them today. You see, it's easy for people to point fingers and make accusations when they don't understand something. I mean, just look at politics today. People do it all the time. And unfortunately, society places an unfair burden of proof on the Bible. The Bible is held to an incredibly high standard. People seem to believe, there are many people who believe that if I can find one problem, one error, one issue with the Bible, I should throw the whole thing out. Can you imagine if we applied that logic 
to society and to our everyday living. I mean, first off, there'd be no marriages. I mean, because um, let's face it, men, we wouldn't survive probably even to the honeymoon. We'd probably make a mistake right out of the marriage and our wives would kick us out. So if we applied that to life, um, there'd be no marriages. Also, there wouldn't be any modern electronics because we would have looked at it and said, hey, um, you know, quantum physics disagrees with relativity. Therefore, we can't use quantum physics for today's modern electronics. Oh, I said geeky nerd, get over it. As a society, we don't typically throw out the baby with the bathwater. So why is it different with the Bible? Well, the good news here is that the Bible holds up even under that level of scrutiny because society is going to continue to look at it that way, but the Bible holds up. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know enough to have a conversation with somebody about the Bible. If they start asking me questions, I don't know enough to be able to actually defend it. That's just Satan messing with you. You see, you don't have to be a Bible theologian in order to answer the accusations about the Bible. It's enough to say, and it is okay to say, wow, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. I hadn't heard that before. Let me do a little bit of research. Let me look into that and see what I can find and get back to you. In other words, respect the person, respect where they're coming from, and then research it. Ask others if you don't know, and then actually get back to them. It's okay to not have all the answers. You want to be able to provide a defense for your faith, but you also want to make sure you're not being defensive about it. In fact, Peter tells us, he says, be ready to provide a defense, but then he immediately goes on to say, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. He doesn't say do it in a gentle and respectful way if you were treated with gentleness and respect. He says do it in a gentle and respectful way, period. So even if we're not treated well, we are still expected to produce our defense without being defensive. So don't feel like you need to have all the answers on the spot. It's okay. But don't avoid the conversation just because you don't know. It's hard to know everything all the time unless you're God. You're not. So it's okay. So I mentioned we're going to tackle some of these objections to the Bible. Before we get to that, I want to hit on some features of the Bible's structure, its authorship, and its history. So we're going to look at some interesting facts about the Bible. First off, it is the best-selling book of all time. Uh, There are roughly 5 billion copies that have been produced. In fact, if you look at the top 100 books of all time, and you took all of the books from number 2 to number 100, they still don't add up to the number of copies of the Bible. And yes, that really does even include Harry Potter. So it's made up of 66 books in two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, some people refer to it as a library of books. The first section, the Old Testament, is made up of 39 books, starting with Genesis and ending with Malachi. The second section is the New Testament, starting with the Gospel of Matthew and ending in Revelation. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written across three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And it was written over a period of 1,600 years by over 40 authors that were made up of everyone from kings to prophets to fishermen to peasants, you name it. And it describes at least 4,000 years of history. And yet, it all fits together coherently. It's a story of a holy and loving God that wants his creation to spend eternity with him. In fact, he wants that so much, he sacrifices his own son to do it. 
It also deals with real locations, real people, and real events. You just saw Dan in Turkey where events of the Bible actually happened. That's one of the great things about our Bible is it describes these things. In fact, the Bible is often referred to as an archaeological gold mine. Archaeology has confirmed so many cities of the Bible from Nineveh to Babylon and countless others. It's confirmed nations and people. Sure, there's always going to be naysayers who say, well, the Bible says this, but uh, we don't think that person actually existed, or we don't think that that empire actually existed. In fact, they used to say that about the Hittite empire, which is a pretty big one featured in the Old Testament. But in 1875, they unearthed, guess what, the Hittite empire and found 10,000 clay tablets describing the empire. They, until very recently, used to say that about David, King David, you know, David, Goliath, David, that David, they used to say he doesn't exist. Until in 1993, so that was just like a few years ago. So in 1993, they discovered proof that there was a King David over Israel. So there is always something being dug up. See what I did there? There's always something being dug up in archaeology that tends to prove the Bible. In fact, there are many archaeologists, including unbelievers, who say don't bet against the Bible. The truth is, these facts about the Bible are not contested, but they are used against it. People hear myths about the Bible based on these facts. I mean, we did say it's made up of 66 books, thousands of years, a lot of different things, and so they'll use that against it, and they start to believe in the myth rather than the truth of the Bible. So instead of asking, how do I know the Bible is true, they simply conclude that it isn't because they've already heard those myths. We're going to take, take on some of those. In fact, uh, how many of you, anybody here seen the show Mythbusters? Yeah, you're my people. All right, so um, we are going to take on some of these myths today. Sadly, I was told I can't blow anything up on stage. Uh, I asked, I even said, hey, I'm an elder. Does that mean I can? No, no, apparently not. But we are going to blow up some of the barriers that people have created to believing in the Bible. We won't be able to address every single question. Uh, There's just, I mean, obviously there's not enough time. I was told also I can't do a three-hour sermon, even though I thought that'd be fun. But my hope today is that you'll see that there are answers and that you don't fear having the conversation, that you don't shy away from the conversation. So how do I know if the Bible is true? Well, we're going to start by removing the barriers. We're going to start by removing these myths. So let's hit the first myth. Here's one that I hear often. The Bible is unreliable because it's been changed over the years. And I think I heard something uh, over here about that. So let's talk about that. The integrity of ancient writings is typically determined by a couple of different things. One of them is the number of documented manuscripts that exist. And the other is the amount of time between when the work was originally written and the earliest manuscript that we have. So for instance, consider Plato. He was an ancient philosophizer dude. And that's a little bit of Bill and Ted's coming out of me here. So um, consider the works of Plato. There are about seven existing manuscripts that largely agree with each other. Um, Unfortunately, the earliest manuscript we have is written about 1,200 years after Plato supposedly said these things. And yet we still consider that to be a pretty good amount of evidence. We're pretty confident this is actually what Plato said. So seven manuscripts and 1,200 years between, when they, between our earliest copy and when those things were originally written. Now consider Homer's Iliad. This is a Greek epic poem. 
There are about 643 existing manuscripts that largely agree with each other. That's 636 more than Plato. And it's the largest number of manuscripts for an ancient text outside of the Bible. There are roughly 500 years between when he wrote it and our earliest manuscript. So a lot less time, we have a lot more copies, so we have fairly good, in fact, I'd say great confidence in the validity of today's rendition of the Iliad. Now consider the Bible. There are about 24,000 manuscripts for the New Testament alone. 24,000. That's slightly more than 643. There are fragments of the Old Testament today that are separated by a thousand years that are still 95% the same and differ only in spelling and style. In fact, the number of manuscripts that agree with each other alone is enough for us to have amazing confidence that what we read in today's Bible is the same as what we, as what they read back when it was written or what was written. In the case of the New Testament, for instance, those 24,000 fragments, we have high confidence that that is exactly what the early church saw. And on top of that, those fragments were written just 25 to 50 years after the events happened. I want you to think about that for a moment. How many of you were, how many of you remember where you were at 9-11, when 9-11 occurred? Yep. All right, now this is, I promise this is not an age test, um, but here's the next one. How many of you remember where you were when the space shuttle Challenger exploded? I remember elementary school, I, that was a huge thing. How many of you remember the Apollo moon landing? All right, no, no, be proud. Yeah, I, I, I can't raise my hand for that one, but still, be proud. Um, all of these events happened in the last 25 to 50 years. In fact, that's what we would call living memory. So if you think about that 25 to 50 year time span for the early church, what that means is there was very little time to misrepresent anything that occurred. And in fact, you had people who were alive who could contest the writings if they thought that they were wrong. So there wasn't this big gap. We have a huge amount of confidence. In fact, the scholar John Warwick Montgomery said it really well. He said, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. So what you read in the Bible today is what was written by its authors. So the myth is that the Bible is unreliable because it's been changed over the years. I'd say that myth is busted. All right, let's hit the next one. A bunch of medieval dudes arbitrarily decided what books to include in the New Testament. All right, well, this has a few different variations. Um, The books included in the Bible were decided hundreds of years after the church formed, or there were thousands of books to consider. We just got a random mix. There are a few different variations on this particular myth. Um, But this line of thinking has a number of problems with it. The first is to consider the earliest of the early church So think about the first generation of Christians and ask yourself, how did they choose? How did they decide what to accept and copy and read and study and circulate? Because obviously they were making copies, they were reading, they were circulating. That's why we have 24,000 fragments. So how did they decide? It was pretty simple. Uh, Number one, if it came from one of Jesus's appointed apostles, apostles, if it's something that they actually wrote, then it was considered authoritative. And number two, if it was written under the direct guidance of an apostle, then it was considered authoritative. 
Those were the two criteria that basically said, this is authoritative and we will use this. So by AD 100, this is the first 70 years of the church, most of what we call the New Testament was written and read. There was no central governing body over it. It simply was what the church considered authoritative, and it was based on the rules that we just talked about. By AD 300, lists of New Testament books were already in circulation. And by AD 393, a council of church leaders did meet, but they met to ratify the books of the New Testament. Not to choose them, they met to ratify and say, yep, these are the books we've all been reading. Yeah, you're 27, you're 27, you're 20. Okay, great, yeah, I guess we're all agreed. And they ratified the books of the New Testament. So the New Testament today is the same New Testament that we had in the earliest church. So this myth that a bunch of medieval dudes arbitrarily decided what books to include in the New Testament, that one is also busted. It's a fun graphic. It's the best I could do. I can't blow things up, so uh, you'll have to live with the graphic. So uh, let's hit the next myth. The Bible is full of contradictions. Now, this is a big one. We're going to spend a lot of time here because this is one that I think I hear more than anything else. The Bible is full of contradictions. And oftentimes we feel unprepared to defend that because it's a big book. We just heard there are 66 books written by dozens of authors over hundreds of years. It's really easy for someone to point a finger at that and say, this is full of contradictions. It's a lot harder to prove it. Unfortunately, some of us have heard that myth so many times that we've started to believe it ourselves. And so that makes it all the more important that we bust this myth, that we get rid of this, at least in our minds. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start by asking, okay, well, why do people believe that the Bible is full of contradictions? How are they landing in that place? Well, the first reason is because many people misunderstand the difference between a contradiction, a paradox, and a mystery. So when people say the Bible is full of contradictions, they're taking that word and they're throwing it around loosely. A contradiction basically says that something is one thing and then says that it is not that thing at the same time. So for instance, if I tell you, I met my wife in Kennewick, and then I turn around and I tell you, I met my wife in Seattle. I just created a contradiction. That is a contradiction. A paradox, on the other hand, is an apparent contradiction that under closer scrutiny resolves itself. So Jesus, for instance, said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, Jesus is talking about giving up our lives in one sense and gaining life in him in another sense. He's saying that if we give over control of our lives to him, then we will find real life in him. This is a paradox. It is not a contradiction. And then there are mysteries. Mysteries say that it's something that we can't currently explain or comprehend. So for instance, the Bible tells us that God is three persons in one essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is a divine mystery that we can't wrap our little heads around. But it's not a contradiction. So the first thing you have to do when you hear that the Bible is full of contradictions or someone says that is to find out, are we actually talking about a real contradiction or are we talking about a paradox or a mystery masquerading as a contradiction? Another, people, or another reason that people think the Bible is full of contradictions is that they're reading into the Bible 
instead of taking the time to truly understand the Bible. We're going to look at three aspects of this. We're going to look at genre, context, and translation. So the first one, genre. So the Bible is made up of multiple genres. In other words, multiple writing styles. So if you look at it, the Bible has historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, literature, uh, prophecy, gospels, which are a little bit of narrative, a little bit of biographical, and a little bit of proclamation. You have letters, apocalyptic literature, and a lot more. And how you read genre matters. For instance, we shouldn't read poetry as historical narrative. So for instance, if I take the book of Psalms, which is full of poetic metaphors, and I try and read that as historical narrative, and I say this is literally the thing, then I'm left believing that God literally has physical wings, is made of rock, and shoots fire out of his mouth all the time. That's if I read the book of Psalms wrong. The same thing happens when we read other forms of literature, other genres. So for instance, when we read wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, and we read it as a list of promises. Sometimes we can pick up the book of Proverbs and we can say, oh, look, it says this in Proverbs. This is God's promise to me. No, not necessarily. This is wisdom literature, not promise literature. And if you read it as promise literature, it can leave you confused or disappointed. So what matters is how you read that. There's an amusing example, actually, in Proverbs um, that I rather like. It's in Proverbs 26. It says, don't answer the foolish arguments of fools or you will become as foolish as, foolish as they are. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. Okay, those two verses are right next to each other. I can't believe that the author didn't catch that one. So is that really a contradiction, or is there something more I should be reading in terms of genre and intent? Well, there's more I can be reading. The author is saying that sometimes wisdom is ignoring a fool. Sometimes wisdom is answering a fool. It is situational and it will require wisdom to know which one to choose. So we need to read the books of the Bible according to the genre they were written in. You wouldn't read a biography of Abraham Lincoln the same way that you would read a book of poetry that he wrote. And you need to approach the Bible in a similar way, willing to understand the author's intent. So that was genre. Now let's tackle context. So context is all about asking questions. Context is all about who was the author, what was he trying to communicate, who was he trying to communicate to, when was he communicating, all of these different things, context matters. If a prophet says something to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, I cannot automatically apply it directly to my life today, literally. I cannot necessarily do that. So, um, when we see that, though, it can seem like a contradiction. So, for instance, let's look at uh, a verse that I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for because I know it's a favorite of everybody. And if you have any issues, please send me an email. My email is danshields at vrl.church. <laughs> We're going to look at Jeremiah 29.11. Now, this is a favorite refrigerator magnet of many of us. Honestly, I've got it on my fridge. And it says this, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. We like that verse, and we like to believe that it was written to us. It wasn't. It was not actually written to us. In fact, the prophet Isaiah is actually conveying God's message to the nation of Israel that God has decided to exile to Babylon. Why? Because they weren't following him. 
And so this is the broader context of what Isaiah is telling them God is saying. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because its welfare will determine your welfare. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster. To give you a future and a hope. In those days... When you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. That's a bit different than the refrigerator magnet when you look at the full context of that. But notice I said that I have that on my fridge as well. Why? Well, I can't read that passage and see it as a direct promise to me today. But what I can do is I can read it and see the heart of God for his people, even when they are in sin and rebelling against him. I can see God's heart for his people, and I am his people. So I can read God's heart. So I keep that on my refrigerator to remind me of God's heart. Not because I read that as a literal promise written to me intently, but because I can see God's heart, and that's why it's included in there. So even though it wasn't written to us, it informs us of God's heart for us. So context can help us make sense of what seems like or feels like a contradiction. In fact, earlier um, I said that I met my wife in Kennewick and that I met my wife in Seattle and that that was a contradiction. Well, what if I provided you a little more context? If I took those two statements, yeah, those two statements alone are a contradiction. But if I add some context and say, I met my wife for the first time in Kennewick and I met my wife for dinner in Seattle... Well, okay, now there is no longer a contradiction because I've shown the context of it. So context matters, and what seemed like a contradiction wasn't because we looked at the context. Additionally, the English language is dumb. So I just want to put that out there because we use the same word over and over for different things, meet and met, and we have one word, love, and the Greeks had like 32 different versions of the word love. Our language is incredibly limited, which brings me naturally, to translations. So grammar and syntax and punctuation, all the things you hated in school, unless you were weird, um, are still hard in today's languages. So modern languages still struggle with translation. Consider a simple example. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Now, you don't necessarily need to even know German to know that I said, do you speak German? Oh, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Um, But is that actually what I asked? Do you speak German? Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Um, No, not really, because if you look at a literal translation of Sprechen Sie Deutsch, it's speak you German. That would be a literal translation of Sprechen Sie Deutsch. Not do you speak German, it would be speak you German. And notice I keep adding that little inflection to the end there to indicate that it was a question. But the truth is the ancient manuscripts were largely devoid of any punctuation. So is it Sprechen Sie Deutsch, as in speak you German? Or is it, speak, you German? (laughs) 
translating from ancient languages is hard. So you have to look at it and say, am I translating word for word? Am I translating thought for thought? Or am I paraphrasing? So that is why when you go to a bookstore, you have this dizzying array of all these different Bible translations out there. There are things like the NASB and the ESV, which is something that gets you very close to a word for word translation. The NIV and NLT, incidentally, the NLT is what we use here. These give you more of a thought for thought translation. Then there's the message and the Klingon Bible translation project if you're looking for paraphrasing. And yeah, it's really a thing and it's cool. I'm <laughs> just going to say. There are a lot of people who will debate which is the best version, the best translation. <clears throat> Klingon. Um, each has its purpose and place. So sometimes we can think we see a contradiction when in fact it's actually an issue with translation. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, dang, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of stuff to keep track of. But the Bible reminds us that we are supposed to meditate on God's word. We're supposed to study it. We are supposed to use it for teaching and correction and for training in righteousness. And sometimes the things that matter most in life require some effort. Sorry. Not really. The bottom line is that the Bible is not full of contradictions. Now, it can be hard to prove a negative. It can be hard to say there are zero contradictions in the Bible. And someone is going to come along and say, well, the Bible says A, and it says B, and therefore that's a contradiction. But there's a very good chance that it's not so much a contradiction, but more that they don't understand what A and B are actually saying. So I think that we've made a compelling case to say that most contradictions are simply misunderstandings of the text. So the myth that the Bible is full of contradictions, I'm going to consider that myth busted. <clears throat> there are plenty more myths out there, and you've probably heard some of them, and I heard some of them uh, earlier today. Uh, you can't be a scientist and a Christian. Well, I have degrees in computer science, math, and physics that say otherwise. The Bible isn't relevant today because of how it addresses gender roles. That's due largely to a misreading of what the Bible actually says about gender roles. Or this is a good one. The God of the Old Testament is all about punishment and war and, and anger. And the God of the New Testament is all about love. No, it's the same God. We just have a hard time understanding the full consequences of free will and sin and a fallen world. This is one I hear often. Science has disproved the Bible through evolution and the Big Bang. No. No, actually it hasn't. We just need to have a deeper conversation about genre, genetics, genealogical descent, and the greatness of our God. Or here's one, Jesus didn't really die, he was only mostly dead. We're going to tackle that one next week. The list goes on. But the purpose of today's lesson, again, wasn't to try and give you all the answers. That's not possible. The purpose of today was to encourage you to have the discussion to face your doubts, to be okay not having all the answers and to be able to tell someone, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm gonna go and research it because I'd love to chat with you more about that. Now, for some of you, this may feel overwhelming, but I want, you, I want to encourage you, don't shy away from it. And the good news is that there are a ton of resources out there. Start by picking up a study Bible with commentary. In fact, you can see an example of it on the screen behind me here. Commentaries are explanations of biblical text. 
written by biblical scholars. And so study Bibles tend to have commentaries alongside the biblical text, as well as other information such as the author, the culture at the time, all of these different things. And at the risk of product placement, when I was looking for resources that I could share with you, this is what I found, what you see on the screen behind me, this NLT Illustrated Study Bible, and I was very impressed by it. So if you don't have a study Bible, I'm going to encourage you, this is not a bad place to start. You can find it on christianbooks.com or Amazon. On. There are electronic versions, used copies, all those things. But bottom line, find some resources. Actually spend the time to study the Bible. Study with other Christians in a life group. Spend some time getting to know it. Ask a pastor or an elder or another Christian if you're not sure where to start or if you have questions. Because Jesus tells us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus isn't saying that if I ask for a new BMW, I'm going to get a new BMW. He's saying that if I ask for understanding, that if I ask to understand his truths, and if I seek him and pursue him, then he will respond. He will answer. He will provide understanding. And so you may not be able to respond to every objection, but that's okay. And is it because that there are questions we can't answer? No, I don't think so. One of the things to be aware of when you're in that conversation is that sometimes the myths aren't the real issue. The real issue is that the person you're talking to doesn't like what the Bible says. It's not that they don't believe it, they just don't like what it says. Because if you believe the Bible is true, then it means you may have to change the way you live your life. If you believe the Bible is true, then you have to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. It requires changes. So it's not always that people don't believe or can't believe the Bible. It's that they would rather not believe the Bible. So that makes our job all the more important, to get some of those objections out of the way, to get to the real issue. So that means we need to be open to the conversation. We need to ask for help when we need it and be ready to engage in the conversation so we can get the objections out of the way and get to the core of the issue. Do you believe in Jesus that he should be the Lord of your life? So always be ready to explain your hope as a believer and always be ready to do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for the time that we've had today. And God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for how rich your word is and how it speaks to us over the years, over the generations. And God, I pray for each person here that each person would take the time to study your word, to truly spend time in it, to really look at what you have to say about us, to inform us of your heart for us. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I just pray that when we encounter people who doubt your word, that that we would engage in that conversation, that we would be willing to open up, even if we don't have the answers, Father, that we would trust in you. God, I thank you for the time that we've had today, and I thank you for your son who makes all of these things possible, and it's in his name we pray, amen.